Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 13 Finally, the final scene of this little play with Pilate. Pilate is anxious to free Jesus, but the Jews say, if you free him, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who makes himself king is defying Caesar, and immediately Pilate realizes what's happening here. He could come off looking like a patsy in terms of Caesar. He could get in trouble. Uh, He realizes that he's not going to be able to save him and save his own position at the same time. Hearing these words, Pilate had Jesus brought out. Now, most Bibles read the following. Pilate had Jesus brought out. He sat down on the judgment seat, uh, a a place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was Passover preparation day at at about the sixth hour. But there's no reason. In the Greek, it's just as plausible to translate it the following way. Pilate had Jesus brought out and seated him, namely Jesus, on the judgment seat. A place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the Passover preparation day, about the sixth hour. Now, the very next verse is, Pilate says to the Jews, here is your king. Now, the scholars, biblical scholars are not in agreement about this at all. Some say Pilate sat on the judgment seat. Some say Jesus sat on the judgment seat. But I think the next verse, Pilate says, here is your king. It's no, it's no less plausible that Jesus sat on the judgment seat than it is that Pilate called him a king. In other words, I think what the evangelist is doing here is structuring this, the passion story in order to show us that at the decisive moment, that is to say at the moment of judgment, it is Jesus who is the judge and it is the world namely Pilate and the crowd, that are being judged. And also at that same moment, it says it was preparation day at about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, which is noon, was the day, was the exact moment at which across town at the temple on another uh, stone structure, the sacrifices began for the Passover. And so the, the, the priest knife begins to fall uh, on all of these sacrificial victims at exactly that moment. And at precisely that moment, Jesus is sitting on another stone slab, which is, in terms of the anthropological and archaeological root of this thing, the stone slab he's sitting on, the judgment seat, is, the, is a remnant of the same primitive sacrifice that the that the sacrificial altar at the temple is a remnant of. It's precisely the same scenario in both cases. They both represent the same, uh, if you will, architectural refinement on primitive sacrifice. And so over there at the temple, it's beginning, and here at the praetorium, it's beginning. And it's the, what this evangelist does marvelously is he makes it ambiguous. So in a way, the reader has to decide. I don't think he... I don't know if he... I can't imagine he did that intentionally so maybe the Holy Spirit did I don't know but the question is how are you going to read it who sat on that judgment seat what do you think whom do you say that I am the gospel presents you with that thing who really is the judge of this thing well we know I mean the gospel says what's happening but I think we should read it that Jesus sits on the judgment seat 
Pilate says, here's your king. They say, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate, in a mocking tone probably, says, do you want me to crucify your king? And they, the chief priest say, we have no king but Caesar. Now this is the other, the other great thing that must echo from the Passion story. When Pilate says, what is truth? He, he, he shows that the philosophical tradition is dead. When the chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar, they show that their own determination to zealously enforce Jewish uh, orthodoxy has turned into its opposite. So that in the presence of the revelation that Jesus incarnates, all existing systems for for uh, uh, for uh, reinforcing the world and ordering it produce the opposite of their former results. The philosophical tradition becomes openly agnostic, bankrupt, and the religious system becomes openly uh, uh, unfaithful. So everything declares its bankruptcy in the pre- That's why he's sitting on the judgment seat. Jesus is led out to be crucified, and he is crucified. He hangs on the cross, and he looks down. This is the scene, kind of a touching scene, but also one with a certain polemic to it. Uh, he looks down on his on his mother, with uh, the wife of. Uh, Cleophas and Mary of Magdala. Seeing his mother and the disciple he loved standing near her, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, this is your son. Then to the disciple he said, This is your mother. From that moment the disciple made a place for her in his house. Now, this is a very touching scene, of course, but it has a certain polemic value. I mean, it's hardly a place for church politics, but You know, James, the brother of Jesus, there's lots of quibbles about what that term means, but we're told in the New Testament he's the brother of Jesus. So uh, anyway, so James, the brother of Jesus, is the head of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, that's pretty strong precedent, you know. His brother is our, you know, the head of our community. And if you're a renegade community as John's was it's hard to buck that you know well what happens in this story is right at the right from the cross you have an adoption of sorts and so the beloved disciple becomes Jesus's brother and Jesus's mother goes to live with the beloved disciple and so John too has a the central figure, the leader of John's community, is also a brother of Jesus and a, and a relative. It's, it has that quality. It's, it has, I think, deeper spiritual implications as well, but uh, it has that. And then Jesus dies. He knew that everything had been accomplished, and to fulfill the Scriptures perfectly, he said, I thirst, and they gave him cheap wine or vinegar on a hyssop stick. Hyssop was what was used to paint the doorposts of the uh, at, at the, in the Passover in Egypt, you know, with blood of the slain lamb. Uh, but they reach up and give him this cheap wine or vinegar. But when he says, I thirst, you know, it, 
earlier on, he said, I, I must drink the cup the Father has given me to drink. Clearly, the, the thirst here, as John's telling it, is a thirst for completion of the, of, the, of the passion. And then he says, Jesus' last words, he says, it is accomplished. And bowing his head, he turned over or gave over, handed over his spirit. Earlier he had said, unless I go, the paraclete cannot come to you. This breathing out of his last spirit onto the world uh, sets something in motion. And we're told by right before that what it is. It is accomplished. The question is, what is accomplished? What is accomplished by that? He didn't say, as soon as I rise from the dead, it will be accomplished. He didn't say, he said, at that moment, he said, it is accomplished. And I know of no other way to read that than to assume that what is revealed at that, uh, at, at that scene will change everything. That that is the decisive, revelatory moment in the history of the world. In, in every respect, it reveals the dynamic because this is precisely what people like Frazier and, and, and a popular level, Joseph Campbell, saw about this, and a lot of people saw about the story. They say, oh, look, it looks just exactly like all those other myths. It looks just like all those other myths where uh, the, the crowd uh, kills and dismembers the, the, the god and then becomes a worshiper of the god and, and uh, so on. And it has, it has an almost breathtaking similarity to those myths except for one glaring difference, and that is that it tells the story from the point of view of the victim, and it recognizes that the mob was in a state of delusion, and that the victim was innocent, and that the violence was, was uh, fundamentally absurd. And the only thing that kept it from being absurd was that as a result of the, who the victim was, a revelation of the absurdity of it became uh, possible. If the crucifixion represents the decisive revelation about the s sacrificial or scapegoating nature of human culture, and if the misrecognition of that uh, phenomenon is necessary in order for human culture to continue to function, then the fact that it has now been revealed will will uh, begin to destroy its ability to generate uh, its social to provide its social benefits. So I think it's in that light. I want to read. I want to read something from the farewell discourse that, that occurs before the Passion of John. But I want to set the stage for it by reading a passage in. Matthew, important passage in Matthew, where Jesus says the following, if your hand or foot should cause you to sin, often it's translated to sin, but the word really means to, scan, to scandalize. If, it's scandal, if you're scandalized by your hand or your foot, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into endless conflagration. And if your eye should cause you scandal, 
tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna. Gehenna, translated hell often, was the garbage dump southwest of Jerusalem, which had once been the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which Jer uh, Jeremiah had, had designated as the place of human sacrifice. He, Jeremiah had condemned it as the, as the uh, habitual place of human sacrifice, the Valley of, Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Translated into Greek, it's Gehenna, and translated from Greek into English, it's hell. So, but the hell he's talking about is the hell of human sacrifice. Or at least that's one of the implications in the term. The etymology implies that. So avoid scandal because scandal, and scandal here, by the way, one of Gerard's great contributions, I think, is to rehabilitate this term scandal. It began to be dropped out of biblical translations or marginalized in biblical translations for almost a funny, humorous reason, really, if you think about it. And that is, uh, the modern world became more and more uncomfortable with the what was a cliché about uh, the New Testament, particularly Paul's writings, and that is that somehow it was sexually hung up, and that uh, we have to somehow overcome that and outgrow this uh, sexual hang-up we have that people thought they found in Paul's writings, which is... Uh, not there, or there's very little evidence for it. But in any event, there was this question of uh, we, we don't want to be, certainly in the modern world, we don't want to be thought to be sexually prudish. So, uh, the, And since scandal probably in the modern mind, you know, conjures ideas of sexual uh, transgressions of some kind. So since scandal conjured up these, we, let's just not translate it as scandal. Let's translate it as something else and not talk about it. It's not very important anyway. And Gerard points out it's an extremely important word in the New Testament to understand what Jesus' message is. And the scandal is precisely what sometimes we call having your, somebody push your buttons. You know. A scandal is, is when suddenly you're caught up in the social melodrama and you, and you can't help yourself. You're completely compelled by it and, and it becomes a fixation. Now, the way human societies have solved these fixations in the past is by scapegoating. If things get wild enough and this sort of melodrama gets frenzied enough, sooner or later, the nature of the mimetic dynamic will be such that somebody will be found to be the culprit and everybody will polarize their animosity towards that person or that subculture and vent their violence against them and discover by venting their violence a, a new camaraderie and everything will be returned to order. That's assuming that the sacrificial option is still available and still functioning normally. Uh, if it's not functioning, fun functioning normally, then that whole thing falls apart and scandal will simply produce an endless conflagration, so an interminable cycle of reciprocal violence. So... When Jesus says it's accomplished, I think he means that that system is broken. And then it's in light of the, of the collapse of that system or the fatal wound that it has received at the crucifixion that this injunction of Jesus is very important. Do not become scandalized. Do not allow yourself to be swept into that social melodrama and, uh, and, and be caught up with it and fixated by it. Do not allow yourself be, to be 
obsessed by some social melodrama because it will only now lead you into conflagration. Now, okay. The Farewell Discourse interprets the passion before the passion and it interprets it from a very spiritual point of view and I want to try to end this at least to some extent on a, on a note of uh, spiritual significance. Jesus in the Farewell Discourse chapter 15 says, I leave you peace. But it's my own peace that I leave you. It is not the peace that the world knows. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Make your home in me and I will make my home in you. So this peace that Jesus leaves requires that we abide in him and he abide in us. It's, it's a peace that requires a response. What does it mean to make my home in him and have him make his home in me? That I, th that I think is the, is the prerequisite for the peace that passes understanding. What Paul calls the peace that passes understanding. Not the peace that the world knows. Jesus is not saying here, they're, they're, the world's going to be nice to you. On the contrary, he's saying they're going to chase you out of town, they're going to persecute you, you're going to suffer for my name's sake, and so on and so forth. But I'm going to leave you peace. And the peace will be the peace that you will experience if you make your home in me and... I will make my home in you. And now, here's what happens if you don't. This is, by the way, in the middle of that discourse on the vine and the branches. He says, As a branch cannot bear fruit all by itself, but must remain, a part, must remain part of the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me with me in him bears fruit in abundance. But cut off from me, he can do nothing. We'll see in a minute about Peter being cut off from Jesus in the Passion Story. If our experience of the Passion Story or of the Christian Revelation makes it impossible for us to, to be fully enveloped by conventional culture, if it shatters the envelope of conventional culture and leaves us outside of it in some way, in it but not of it, as Paul said. Then the question is, where will we make our home? You have to make your home somewhere. And when I think, when Jesus says, make your home, or when the evangelist says that, I think he's talking about how we ground ourselves. In what reality do we ground ourselves? Uh, in what do we live and move and have our being? We tend to think that we're autonomous. This is the, the fallacy of the modern world. We're all autonomous. And that our creativity is synonymous with our autonomy, that we are creative because we are autonomous. It's not true. And the gospel recognizes that. And he says this, anyone who does not remain in me is like a branch that has been thrown away. He withers. The Greek word means to dry up. These branches are collected and thrown on the fire and they are burned. Now he does not immediately... What, what's conjured here is the idea of some terrible judging God who throws bad people into hell. It's nothing. There's no mention of that. All that's mentioned is a collectivization. These dry branches are collected and, and uh, suddenly there's a conflagration. How do we avoid the conflagration? And this is where the anthropology of the Gospels and the spirituality of the Gospels come together. 
The anthropology is that if we continue uh, to, if we cut ourselves off and we are cut off from our own cultural moorings because of the revelation, uh, and if we try to cut it, you know, cut our own swath in the world and, and uh, eschew any kind of modeling or any kind of discipleship or refuse to have a Lord or try to do it our own way or something, we become laughably like everybody else in the world. And sooner or later, as Jung said, we become the shuttlecock for every wind that blows. And sooner or later, it will blow up a great conflagration. And that's the anthropology of the revelation. And the spirituality of it is, Jesus says, if you make your home in me and I make my home in you, it won't happen. It won't happen. You will be alive. You will be created. And you will not get caught up in the melodrama. That is to say, you will not find yourself obsessing over something that leads to the conflagration. So it's in light of that that I want to just at the end touch on Peter's story because Peter gets caught up in the melodrama and at the very end he pulls out of it. And with him comes the Christian revelation. I think Peter's role in the in the what became the resurrection is essential. When Jesus is arrested, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the, high pri- the ear of the high priest's servant. So Peter is scandalized. You see, he responds in kind to the violence that has come to, to arrest Jesus. And he does exactly what the scandalized person does. He draws his sword and becomes part of it. He just becomes the reciprocal version of the mirror image of it and slashes out. And you think, oh, well, he's brave. He's standing by his Lord and so on. He's the one who's really loyal. But it's not so because it's precisely Peter who later on when they go to the high priest's house. See, if you're standing in the middle of this crowd and you draw on that whole mimetic energy, you can do some pretty brave things but it's not bravery. It's part of the mimetic thing. When he gets to the margins of the crowd as he is when he gets to the high priest's house, he loses it altogether. So it says this. They get to the high priest's house. This is the way of, again, it's the, the beloved disciple coming out on top here. You know, The beloved disciple is known to the high priest, so he goes in. Peter stands at the gate. The, the disciple comes out and gets Peter to bring him in. But at the door, there's the a maid who says to Peter, aren't you a member of this man's, aren't you another of this man's disciples? He said, no, I'm not. He says, ego emi, the negative version of ego emi. Jesus has just said, ego emi, I am, to the arresting crowd. Now Peter says, the negative version of ego emi. No, I'm not. And here's how it reads. She says, aren't you another of this man's disciples? Peter answered, no, I am not. Now it was cold. And the servants and the guards lit a charcoal fire. And they were standing around warming themselves. So Peter stood there too, warming himself with the other. Now, when in chapter 15, Jesus says, if you get cut off from me, you will dry up. And sooner or later, there will come along a collectivization and you will be thrown into the conflagration. That's all very dramatic, you know. 
And you think, well, if it ever happened like that, I would see it coming and I could avoid it. But now it doesn't happen like that. It happens like this. He says, are you really his disciple? I am not. How many times have I said that in my life? I don't, it never happens that way. It's always, it, we're nickel and dime to death on it, you know. It's always something else. Some little backing and filling and some little trying to make sure we don't be, we're not, we, we keep our intellectual integrity intact and, and let everybody know that we're just as rebellious as everybody else in the 20th century. So, are you this man's disciple? I am not. Now, it was cold. So, no dawning of revelation. Nobody says, oh, well, see what happened, Peter? You said that and then it got cold? No, it just seemed like, well, it was a little chilly. So, it says, the servants and the guards built a little charcoal fire. And they all drift over to this charcoal fire, Peter among them, and warm themselves. And it says, Peter stood there too, warming himself with the others. It's very important that that phrase, with the others, is there in the original Greek because he's warming himself socially. It's more important, the social warming is more important, you see, than the fire. This is describing a social phenomenon. Now, the farewell discourse says if you are cut off, you dry up, a collectivization comes along, you're thrown into the fire. A conflagration, a great roaring, raging conflagration. Well, no big deal. This is a charcoal fire. It's a little tiny thing, you know. It's no big deal. A few embers, that's it. We don't realize that that is the remnant of the conflagration or the sacrificial immolation and that when time comes a new one will be rekindled from its ashes so we don't realize when this thing is happening to us and we say no we deny it we choose to be a more respectable member of our society and we move over and circle around this little thing and start to warm ourselves we don't realize that we're doing precisely what is talked about in chapter 15 when he says, if you're cut off from me, you will dry up, become collected, and end up in a raging fire because it doesn't seem like a raging fire. It seems like a little pile of embers. But I think that's, that's the, that is the realism of the gospel here. I mean, there's oriental hyperbole in a way in this talk about the conflagration and so on. But here's the realism of it. This is how it really happens. And this is the part we know happened. It's in all the Gospels. This happened. We know this for sure. And then Peter's standing there, standing there warming himself, and someone else said to him, Aren't you another this man's disciple? He denied it. I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relation of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? And he denied it again, and the cock crowed. And the cock crows. And Peter is saved from this. And the cock announces the dawn of a new day. It announces the light coming into the world. I think the cock has gotten the short end of the stick because we tend to think of the Holy Spirit in terms of the dove, you know, something like that. I think the cock is a much better uh, candidate because the truth is the Holy Spirit comes to us often as a... I mean, no, I shouldn't say often. Occasionally... 
the Holy Spirit comes to us as a dove. I mean, we're, you know, we're looking out from the mountaintop or something, or we're, you know, being, we're in the Jordan River up to up to our armpits, and suddenly there's the dove. But more often, it comes in the form of the crowing of, of the cock. You know, we realize, oh, I did it again. It's a joyous thing, really. I mean, it's repentance. It, it always comes with repentance. Thing. But it's pulling Peter out of this thing that he's drifting into. Were it not for the cock crowing right there, assuming Peter's role to be what I think it was in the in the realization of the importance of Jesus' of the Passion story, had, there, had that cock not brought him out of that state he was in, there'd be no Christianity. It's the Spirit working in precisely that way. Well, there's a, something corresponds to that in the burial scene. And it begins this way. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because he was afraid of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him remove the body of Jesus. Pilate gave permission, so they took it away. Nicodemus came as well, the same one who had first come to Jesus at nighttime. And he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and so on, and they prepared the body and put it into the tomb. So notice... At the burial of Jesus, you get Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both of whom are what scholars now call crypto-Christian. That is to say, they come at night or on the sly, and they're, they're disciples in that kind of furtive way, you know. And what the, resurrect- what, what, the crucifixion, what the crucifixion does is that it flushes them out. They come out of the closet. And they behave in such a way as to indicate openly their discipleship or their dependence on their Lord. So, to me, the story of Peter and the story of, in in a much less developed way, the story of Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus, uh, belong as a footnote in a way to this thing in John 15, where he says, You must now make your home in me if you want to keep from being drawn into these melodramas and getting caught up in this thing over and over and over again. Then you must make your home in me and I'll make my home in you. And you will have a rudder in the world. You'll have ballast. You You may have a hard go of it, but you won't get caught up in the in the sacrificial crisis, the melodrama. So maybe the way to end the Passion story is to go back and, and read the version of it, the four-line version of it that appears in the prologue. He was in the world that had its being through him, and the world did not know him. And I think if you... It's speaking here of the eternal logos, but... It's possible to read this anthropologically as well. The world had its being through its victim. We have always conjured culture out of uh, out of rituals of victimization. So the world, culture world, the world of human culture, is created at the expense of the victim. 
So it says, He was in the world that had its being through Him. He being the ultimate victim. In the world that had its creation culturally via the victim. He came to his own domain and his own people did not accept him. But to all who did accept him, he gave the ability or the means by which to become children of God. And that is to identify with him. No doubt in our day that I think for most of us who regard ourselves as being, you know, to some degree sophisticated, I think that's the most, uh, the most troublesome aspect of the gospel, this idea of being a disciple or having a Lord. The, we had to say, you know, the, the, the gospel is very realistic and they say everything depends not on whether or not you think this is a nice story or Jesus was a wise person or anything like that. The real fruits of this revelation depend on a an unshakable identity with Christ. At the heart of Christian faith is the experience of the resurrection. As is clear from the road to Emmaus story to which I referred last week, that experience of resurrection was the end result of a process, a process that may have taken a good deal longer than just the few hours or a few days that we have in many of the New Testament accounts, and one which almost certainly entailed the pondering of the crucifixion in the light of Hebrew scriptures. In the journey from the catastrophe of the cross to the resurrection, from disbelief to belief, the empty tomb was a very tentative and shaky first step and not the end of the journey. In Mark, for instance, the first gospel, the first story with any kind of factual details of the post-crucifixion events, Mark's original gospel ends very abruptly in what is now the middle of chapter 16. There was a later epilogue added to the original text. But Mark's gospel ends with the following verse. And the women came out and ran away from the tomb because they were frightened out of their wits and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's not exactly in the spirit of the resurrection. In other words, the experience of the empty tomb in the first instance was nothing but disconcerting. It was only in light of a later experience of the resurrection that the fact of the empty tomb became significant and became part of the Christian proclamation and the celebration of Easter. In the New Testament, we have accounts of the post-crucifixion events and experiences from various stages in the process, from various times in the first century. The earliest of these accounts involve very few factual details, sketchy factual details. The later accounts involve a much more elaborate description of what happened. Clearly, in the New Testament, the later versions of this of the story 
are forms of interpretation. But they're forms of interpretation that often take the form of added factual detail. The rudimentary details found in the oldest post-Easter accounts gradually become far richer narrative materials in the later accounts. One must remember, however, that the business of the Gospels is not journalistic. It is charismatic. The Gospels were written to help the early Christian communities keep constantly before them the meaning of Jesus' life and death. By embroidering the rudimentary narrative of the most primitive tradition, the evangelists were not trying to revise the past, but rather to highlight its meaning. The central and irreducible fact at the heart of the post-Christian narrative is not so much a factual event capable of being journalistically recorded. Rather, it is an experiential event, one that for all its factual elusiveness was still being experienced by the evangelists and their communities and which is still being experienced today. The challenge we face today, in fact, is how to make that experience available to people, whether they are sitting in the pews or stirring around in the cauldron of cultural and social confusion, or both. And so to that end, I want to begin with John's empty tomb story, the first two verses of it, which are, which are reminiscent of some of the earlier accounts. Uh, and then proceed with the remainder of the empty tomb story and give an anthropological background to the empty tomb story and then uh, at the end return to the resurrection appearances and try to get some feel for what the resurrection might have been for those who first experienced it. At the very beginning of chapter 20, we get, as I said, a something that's reminiscent of the rudimentary accounts. It reads as follows. It was very early on the first day of the week and still dark. So just right away we're told that this is early and still dark. Uh, a hint again that this coming to the resurrection experience was a gradual process. And here we have only its pre-dawn version. Mary of Magdala came to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been moved away from the tomb and came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she said, and we don't know where they have put him. So again, absolutely no... First of all, this is not an empty tomb story. This is an open tomb story. She didn't look in. She just notices that the... But she, she makes the assumption the tomb's empty. They have taken him away. She met, there's absolutely no assumption that the resurrection has taken place. And this is very uh, much of a piece with the early stories, the one in Mark and so on. Uh, clearly, the, the empty tomb story was not, a, was not a happy story at the very beginning. It was a very troubling one because it was, this, it, it was the experience of those who had gone to the tomb to perform their ritual mourning uh, and anointing of the body and so on and so forth, and it was not there. So, now, she goes to tell Peter and the beloved disciple, and the account goes on. So Peter set out with the other disciple to go to the tomb. And this story has, there's a touch of humor in this story, because, you know, Peter and the beloved disciple have, have been foils for each other. Well, Peter, more, more a foil for the beloved disciple in this gospel, representing the leaders of these 
uh, two churches, so to speak. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, Alphonse and Gaston uh, routine going on here between Peter and the beloved disciple as they approach the empty tomb. They go running together, uh, but it reads like this. They ran together, but the, the other disciple, running faster than Peter, reached the tomb first and bent down and saw the linen cloths lying on the ground, but did not go in. Simon Peter, who was following, now came up and went right into the tomb and saw the linen cloths on the ground and also the cloth that had been over his head. This was not with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, so you see that the increasing, this is the, the, the epistemology, if you will, of the resurrection, the increasing lucidity about what's going on. He saw more. He went in, saw more. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and he believed. Till this moment, they had failed to understand the teaching of Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So that summarizes very much the way, a different motif, but very much the way that the road to Emmaus summarizes a journey from crucifixion to resurrection, a gradual journey. Now, that comes out all the more when you realize that, you see, when Peter, when the beloved disciple gets there, he looks in and sees. When Peter gets there, he goes in and sees more. And when the beloved disciple goes in, he sees and believes. And in Greek, there are three different verbs for seeing used in this story. The first is simple seeing with the eyes. The second is the, is the cognate of our word theory. It is to see, in a, to comprehend in a bigger sense than just to see. And finally, the verb is used which is to, to see and experience the meaning. And we use the, often this verb is translated in English Bibles as behold or beheld, uh, and sometimes used as an ejaculation. Behold, you see. Can you see? Can you really experience that? Or he be, suddenly beheld, etc. So you go from a mild form of seeing, you know, in this gospel, believing is seeing and seeing is believing. You go from a mild form of seeing to a very profound form of seeing uh, in the course of this little narrative. And I think that's in keeping with what actually happened. And also you get the added information. Until this moment, they had failed to understand the teaching of Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Clearly, the resurrection experienced happened, so to speak, to people with the Bible open in their hand. In the resurrection story in Luke, there are two angels sitting in the empty tomb and they say, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? Why have you come to the cemetery, for goodness sake? Now, I want to add something before we go on. It's unnecessary in a way and I, I don't... I, 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 most of all, I don't want it to be understood as some kind of reductionism because I don't want to be part of that. But people like their miracles in all sizes and shapes. And in case you have 
if in case miracles of one kind are more interesting to you than miracles of another, I'll offer this under the, under the category of for whatever it's worth. The experience of an empty tomb need not necessarily be based only on the absence of a corpse. One could experience, I think, the empty tomb even if there had been a corpse. Now, I think it's very likely there was none because we have this story and it was so troubling. But for those who like more subtle miracles, I think it's just as miraculous. It perhaps in some ways could be more miraculous to imagine uh, simple first century people of faith discovering that the tomb is empty with the corpse still there. That would be pretty amazing. It would be the experience that he is not here and that he is alive. He is not dead and he is not here. So now we go to the story of the appearance to Mary Magdala. And this story is sort of appended to the other one. There's not much in the way of a, a transition from one to the other. Meanwhile, Mary stayed outside near the tomb weeping. The verb is wailing. We talked about it when, I, when we discussed the raising of Lazarus story. We talked about Jesus' uh, becoming disturbed at the wailing in that story. And you get the same thing here. Meanwhile, Mary stayed outside the tomb wailing. That's a ritual of uh, uh, response to death. And still wailing, the, the verb in the next sentence means a continuous process. She stooped to look inside and saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the feet. This is a little curious because uh, one wonders about what is the head and what is the feet if there's no head and feet there to indicate which is which. Uh, they said, woman, why are you wailing? I don't want you to imply by that that I, I'm, I'm fostering this idea that the corpse was there. I, know, I don't care one way or another. It doesn't matter. I don't, think either, I don't think either one is significant in terms of the resurrection. They said, woman, why are you wailing? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. As she said this, and perhaps from John's point of view, because she had used the word Lord, she turned and saw Jesus there, though she did not recognize him. You know, Jesus is unrecognizable in his risen form. So many of these instances in the, the post-Easter stories have Jesus being unrecognizable. Well, we have to think about that. He was unrecognizable. She saw him, he was there, she didn't recognize him. Woman, why are you wailing, he said to her. Who are you looking for? Supposing him to be a gardener, supposing him to be a gardener, was he a gardener? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and remove him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, that's all, Mary, called her by name. Then she knew and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means master. And he said to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. 
Now, I, and some, sometimes I just hesitate to even wrestle with the implications of some of these things. But when the risen Jesus says to Mary, why are you wailing? And then he says to her, don't cling to me. I think he's saying the same thing. I think the story begins with, the, with a, uh, a, a critique, if you will, of wailing and ends with a critique of clinging, and they represent the same thing. In other words, Mary goes to the tomb to hang on in some way to the historical Jesus. And hanging on to the historical Jesus is a barrier to the experience of the risen Christ. And so she must let go. You know that the Lazarus story ended with Jesus saying, untie him and let him go. And I think the same thing is going on here. Wailing and clinging. Don't hold on to the historical Jesus. Experience the risen Christ. Now, what I would like to do before going on to the resurrection stories is, is comment at some length on how astonishing it is that the Christian scriptures have as a salient feature the empty tomb story. I ha- I'm assuming, and I'll even try to make the point more clearly today, that for, the mo- for us moderns, we will we will become uh, acquainted with the power and, uh, and uniqueness and singularity of the Christian Gospels, the more so that we see them in anthropological terms. And seeing them thus will not in any way de- de- diminish their spiritual implications for each of us. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary, I feel. But to shift from a kind of theological uh, to an anthropological entree to the Gospels, I think is called for in our time and uh, so I would like to encourage that and I would also like to in light of that I would say it is remarkable in the extreme that the resurrection story includes as its entree so to speak as its prelude the empty tomb story and insists on the empty tomb and Jesus says why are you wailing and don't cling to me at the empty tomb in the story. So I want to reflect for the next while on what that means. 